All right. So how many of you guys are happy that school's back in full swing? All right, our parents are happy, right? I think that's all who clapped. Okay, a couple of students, I'll give you credit. A couple of students did clap, but I think most of that were, was parents clapping there. Um, so in, in honor of school being back in full swing this morning, I want to take a few minutes at the beginning of my sermon to share with you some words of wisdom that I believe will help you tremendously this year, especially those of you guys who will be students this year. And what I'm about to share with you could be the difference between passing, it could be the difference between failing, and for some of you, I believe it will be life-changing. All right, so I want you to pay close attention as I share with you this morning the top five excuses not to use when you forget to do your homework this year. Okay, coming in at number five. I did not do my homework because I didn't want anyone else to look bad. Okay, that may sound honorable, but the end result's still going to be the same. You're still going to get a big fat zero, so you can just save your breath, save your time. All right, coming in at number four. I didn't do my homework because it's against my religion. Okay, now I'll be the first to admit our world's getting a little bit goofy, right? Uh, we're getting kind of goofy when it comes to religion and really not wanting to offend anybody. But you may want to wait a few years before this excuse starts working because we're not quite that goofy, at least not yet. Number three, I gave it to a friend of mine to copy and they haven't given it back yet. Okay, general rule of thumb when it comes to making excuses, right? If you're going to take time to make one, at least come up with one that doesn't throw yourself under the bus, all right? That's just common sense for those of you guys that don't have any of that. No poking here, all right? Number two, my dad forgot to do it for me, okay? Now, to be honest with you, this morning, the reason why that one does not work is that we all know that moms are the smart ones. Right, so it may actually work if you said, listen, my mom forgot to do it for me. Sorry, I didn't get to turn it in. All right, you might try that one. It might work. But coming in at the number one excuse not to use when you forget to do your homework this year, drum roll, please. All right, my dog ate it. All right, now, I mean, I get it, right? Like, we have a dog at home named Booger. And Booger likes to eat anything that you leave laying around. And so I understand this may actually be the truth and not an excuse. But this one has been so overused over the years that you would just be better off to come up with something else. So just kind of put that one away too. So there's your top five excuses not to use when you forget to do your homework this year. I'm sure that was life-changing for at least one of you. Now, we can laugh at some of these excuses. We can even try to poke fun at people who might try to use these excuses, but the truth is that we all make excuses at some time or another. We like to come up with excuses in hopes that they will try to help get us out of a jam when, when something goes wrong or when we do something wrong, but the reality is this, that, that excuses are really not helpful. What would be helpful instead of coming up with excuses would be for us just to acknowledge what's wrong and then take some actions to actually get it right. Today we're beginning a new series called No More Excuses. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the negative tendencies that we have as Christ followers that keep us from following Jesus well. And our goal each week is going to be this. Our goal is that we would acknowledge these tendencies in our own lives, stop making excuses for them, and then start taking actions to get rid of these tendencies so that we can follow Jesus more fully. Today, the first tendency we're going to be looking at will be our tendency to try and find fulfillment outside of God. We're going to learn about this um, by looking in the beginning at the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And so if you have your Bibles or using a Bible app this morning, open them up to the first book of the Old Testament. We're going to be in Genesis. 
We're going to be looking at parts of Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 this morning. And so open your Bibles, Bibles app, Genesis chapter 2, chapter 3. I'm going to start off in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, but let me kind of get us up to that verse. Genesis chapter 1, we see God creating the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we see God resting on the seventh day. Then we get to Genesis 2, verse 7, and we begin to get a more in-depth look at God creating man. Look with me at Genesis 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. I want you to notice how God created man. Some of you have heard this before, but it's, it's such an amazing and awesome fact of creation that this is worth repeating every single time we talk about this text. You see, when God created everything else, he simply spoke, and it was. But when God created man, it was much more personal, much more intimate. He used his hands to take dirt from the ground, and he carefully shaped and formed the man. And then he took his lips and he pressed them to the lips of the man, and he breathed into him the breath of life. You see, I love how even from the very beginning of his word, God begins to make it crystal clear that we, mankind, we were created to have a personal and intimate relationship with him. In the next few verses of Genesis chapter 2, we see God begins to provide for the man. Look with me at verses 8 through 10. Says the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. I mean, look at what all God did for man. God planted a garden. He put the man in the garden. He made these plants to grow. And they weren't just plants that were there um, for food. Some of these plants were there simply because they were nice to look at. God wanted man to have those too. And then God made a river flow to help man and creation grow. In Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 17, it says, and The Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And one of my favorite books on raising boys is a book called Raising a Modern Day Night. In that book, it kind of points out how we can learn about our God-given responsibilities as men by looking at the creation account of God creating man. And so in these verses, Genesis 2, 15 through 17, we see the first two of the three God-given responsibilities we have as men. The first two are simply this, that we have a work to do and a will to obey. You see, first of all, God creates man, he puts him in the garden, and he says to man, he says, listen, listen man, just look at everything that I have created for you. I've done all this for you. I want you just to sit there. I want you to get comfortable. I want you to enjoy yourself. I'm going to do all the work. I'll make sure everything's okay. You just get comfortable. And some of you are looking at me kind of perplexed because you know that's not what God's Word says at all. You see, after creating everything and providing everything for man, God put the man to work. See, God told man, He said, listen, you go and tend to and keep the garden. 
Some of you have the ESV study Bible. Uh, the, the commentary note in there, like what it has to say, it says that God gave the man uh, the role and responsibility of not only being a gardener, but also being a guardian. You see, God told man that he was to work the land and take care of it. And not just the land, but all of creation. So the first responsibility that we have as men is to work and care for God's creation. The second God-given responsibility we have is to obey God's will. So we have a work to do, and we have a will to obey. And ultimately, God's will is what's best for us. You see, when God tells us what to do and what not to do, it's not because He's trying to take all the fun out of life. It's because God, the Father, knows best. In our verses, we see God's immediate will for Adam. Adam could eat of any tree in the garden except the one. And the reason God didn't want him to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was because he knew that in the moment he ate from that tree, that death was going to enter the picture. So in Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 17, we see God giving man a work to do and a will to obey. Then in verses 18 through 25, we see God giving man a woman to love. Look at verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The next couple of verses, God goes on to bring every beast of the field and every bird of the air before Adam. Adam has the responsibility of naming them all, but none were found to be suitable as a helper for Adam. Verses 21 through 23, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You see, Adam has everything he needed and then some. Because God in His grace and His mercy had gone far above and beyond when He provided for Adam. God gave him every tree in the garden, and not just trees for food, but trees that were simply good to look at. God gave Adam food and water, animals. He gave him work and a purpose and even a woman to be his partner. But the greatest thing, listen to this, don't miss this, the greatest thing that God gave Adam in the beginning was the personal and intimate relationship that he had with God himself. You see, mankind was created to live in relationship in close proximity with God, and ultimately that was enough. God was enough. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were created to live in the presence of Almighty God, but something went wrong. And what went wrong was the fact that God was no longer enough for Adam and Eve. The Bible teaches us that our ultimate purpose in life is to glorify God. Well, how do we do that? There's many ways of, of, of saying the same thing. One of the ways of looking at that we see in Scripture right here and in what we're looking at today. The, the answer to that question is that we glorify God when God is enough for us. And when God is no longer enough for us, then God is no longer being glorified by us. Some of you are familiar with John Piper. He's one of the great Bible teachers of our day. Piper has a phrase that he uses to summarize what the Christian life is all about. And he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The point is this. We were created to be in relationship and close proximity with God. And that relationship is meant to be more than enough. 
Like God is all we need, but like Adam and Eve, we all have the tendency to try to find fulfillment outside of God. And when we do, just like Adam and Eve, we begin to build these walls between our relationship with us and God. Now, I want us to pay close attention to the following verses, because in these verses, what we're about to cover, we're going to see the enemy, the devil, we're going to see his tactics, we're going to see how he worked to get Adam and Eve to lose sight of the fact that God was enough. And the reason I want you to pay close attention to this is this, he's still doing the same thing today. His tactics have not changed. The bait that he uses to lure us away from God has not changed. So I want you to pay real close attention. We're in Genesis chapter 3. Looking at verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, first of all, we need to understand that the word of God is vital if we want to have a healthy and a vibrant relationship with God. This means that we need to know what God's word says And we need to try to do our best to understand what God's Word says. And not just so that we can know it and understand it, but so that we can apply what it says to our lives. Adam and Eve, they had heard what God had to say. They knew they could eat from any tree in the garden except the one. And up to this point in our story, up to this point, they had applied that Word to their lives. They had not eaten from that tree. Why don't you notice what the enemy does? The enemy begins to twist God's word. Now, he only changes a couple of words, but, but changing those words begins to cause Adam and Eve to be confused, which eventually would lead them to doubt God's word. I want you to look at these verses side by side. God says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, He says, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the devil, he slightly twists God's word, and he says in chapter 3, verse 1, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see the difference? It's just a slight twist. God says basically that you can basically eat of every tree in the garden except the one. And the devil wants Adam and Eve to think that God says you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, no, not one. It's just a slight twist. He's trying to confuse them. One of the devil's primary tactics is to twist God's word. And see, that's why it's so important that we know and understand God's word so that we can apply it correctly to our lives. I want you to look at how Eve responds in verses 2 through 3. The woman said to the serpent, we may, eat of, of the, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Do you notice what Eve does there? Like she added to God's word. And this plays right into the devil's hands. Like God never told them they couldn't touch the tree. He just told them that they didn't need to eat from the tree. You see, the devil loves to twist God's word in order to cause confusion in hopes that it will lead us to doubt God's word. And when we add to God's word, it just adds to the confusion which helps the enemy lead us to doubts. And this is exactly where the enemy begins to take the conversation. Now he takes them, they're confused, he's trying to lead them closer to doubting God. So look at verses 4 through 5. The serpent says to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, the devil doesn't want us to trust God. 
Because he knows that when we, the more we know God and the more we trust God and the more we know God and God's Word and trust His Word, that the harder it will be for him to lure us away from God. So he doesn't want us to trust God. And his tactics work. Like they worked against Adam and Eve. He twisted God's Word. He deceived them. He caused them to doubt that God knew what was best for them and even that God had their best interest at heart. In the next few verses, we learn yet another very important piece of the enemy's tactics. So look with me at verses 6 through 8. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. There's that presence. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So follow what's happening. Adam and Eve were confused. They began to doubt God, and now they've gone against God's will. I mean, don't forget that one of, the, one of the things that the devil loves to enjoy is he loves to cause us confusion so that we'll doubt God. Of all the things that God had given Adam and Eve to enjoy, they chose to go after the one thing they were told to avoid eating from. As a result, the relationship and the close proximity that they had with God was broken. They tried to hide themselves from God. But here's the good news. Like God continued to pursue them. God continued to provide for them. And God even made a way for their relationship with Him to be restored. And before I get to the end of the message and kind of tell you more about that relationship being restored, I want us to see clearly the enemy's tactics and how he, he uses them to deceive us and lure us away from God. So his primary tactic is to twist God's Word in order to confuse us in hopes that it will lead us to doubt. The bait that he uses to lure us away from God is our own desire to glorify and please ourselves instead of glorifying and pleasing God. This connects back to verse 5. We just got through reading. The devil tries to get Eve to doubt God by telling her, listen, God knows that if you eat from this tree, it's just going to make you be like God, right? So it's going to make you be like God. You're going to elevate yourself over elevating God. So it connects back to that. He's luring her away from God in her, with her own desire to glorify and please herself. And we also see this in how the tree appeals to her. So look at what it is about the tree that, that lures her in. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruits and she ate. Now, even though Eve knew that, that God had told them not to eat from the tree, she saw that the fruit from the tree could satisfy her physical cravings, give her what she saw and what she desired, and promote her as being the all-wise one. See, the bait was to get Eve to think everything was about her, her cravings, what she desired, her being the all-wise one. The devil wanted Eve to focus on glorifying and pleasing herself instead of glorifying and pleasing God. It's important that we notice that the devil doesn't just do this with Adam and Eve. 
in the New Testament, in, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, we read how the devil uses this very same tactics, the exact same tactics with Jesus after Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days. The devil goes in and he twists God's word. He tries to get Jesus to be confused in hopes that Jesus might somehow doubt God. But Jesus knew God's word. Like, he is God's word. So the devil was really kind of fighting an uphill battle there. Not a very smart guy. And in the very end, every time the devil would try to tempt Jesus and confuse Jesus to twist God's word, Jesus would throw scripture right back at him, which caused the devil to run. Now, some of you are familiar with David Crowder and his song that's out right now, that Run, Devil, Run, Devil, Run, Devil, Run. I love it. Um, I wish we had time to sing it right now, but you don't want to be here at 1230, um, unless you do. Okay, no takers. So we're going to move right along. Um, so the devil's running. What I want you to see here is that even with Jesus, right, the devil used the same tactics of twisting God's word. But that's not it. He also tried to lure Jesus in with the same bait that he used with Adam and Eve. He tempts Jesus. After Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, and so he's obviously hungry, he tries to get Jesus to turn stones into bread. Why? Because he's trying to lure Jesus in to satisfying his physical cravings. And then he takes Jesus to the top of the temple, and he tries to get Jesus to throw himself off, basically jump Jesus. We're going to see if if God will send his angels to catch you before you hit the bottom. Why would he do that? Because he's he's trying to get Jesus to promote himself in His will, over exalting God in His will. Let's see if I can make God do what I want Him to do. And then finally, the devil takes Jesus up onto a high mountain, and he points out all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Why would he show Jesus this? Because he's trying to lure Jesus into giving his life for the things of this world instead of living his life to to glorify and please God, what he knew was in the eternal See, the devil wanted Jesus to focus in on glorifying and pleasing himself instead of glorifying and pleasing God. But Jesus knew the things of this world would never satisfy him. I mean, he knew that things of this world could satisfy him temporarily, right? Like food will satisfy us temporarily. He knew that. But he also knew that there is nothing in this world, not a single thing, that could satisfy him for all eternity. The only thing in this world that could satisfy him for all eternity was not a thing, but a person. And that was Almighty God. And that comes through this relationship that we can have with God. God knew that he is enough. That's why he wants us to have this relationship with him. Jesus knew that. He knew the only thing that could satisfy him for all eternity was his relationship and close proximity to God. I want you to be aware this morning, the enemy has been using the same tactics since the very beginning of time. He has not changed his tactics. He loves to twist the Word of God in order to confuse us in hopes that it will lead us to doubt. But he also uses the same bait he's been using the whole time. He tries to get us to live to glorify and please ourselves instead of living to glorify and please God. I want you to see this connection in Scripture as well. It is so significant for us that that not just in the very beginning of God's Word, He shows us the enemy's tactics and how He uses those to lure mankind away from a relationship with God that we're created to have. It's significant that we see that in the beginning of Scripture. We see that in the beginning of the New Testament with Jesus. But we also see this same stuff right towards the end of Scripture in, in, in 1 John chapter 2. So in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, we are warned not to be deceived by the enemy and his tactics. And this is what it says. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here's the connection, 
the desires of the flesh, physical cravings, the desires of the eyes, what I see, what I want, and the pride of life, promoting myself. These things are not from the Father, but these are from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away. But whoever does the will of God, that person abides forever. So I want to encourage you this morning with the truth that you and I were created to be in relationship and close proximity with God. And even though the, the enemy's tactics worked with Adam and Eve, right, and because they worked with Adam and Eve and their relationship was broken, our relationship with God is broken today, the good news is that God still pursues us. Like He's still pursuing us, He's still providing for us, and He makes a way for us to have a renewed and right relationship with Him. We don't have to go through life with this broken relationship, and God wants us to have that relationship with Himself because He knows that He is enough. He is all we need. God alone is enough. The only thing that can truly satisfy us in this life and in the next is that personal and intimate relationship with Almighty God. And the way to that relationship begins by God's grace through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. So I have some significant questions I want to ask us to consider this morning. Ultimately, these boil down to the same two questions that I asked my children this morning before I baptized them. The first question is simply this, do you believe in Jesus? I mean, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came from heaven to earth to live His life, die on the cross, pay the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin? And do you believe that He rose three days later and now He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father where He is interceding and standing up for anyone who is willing to put their faith and trust in Him? Do you believe in Jesus? Those are some Significant questions. The second one is just as significant. Have you ever made the commitment to spend the rest of your life following Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Have you made the commitment to spend the rest of your life following Jesus? If you've never made that commitment and today you want to make that commitment, we want to give you the opportunity. So in just a moment, we're going to sing a couple of songs to close out our service, and that will be your time to respond. And if you've never made that commitment, we want to encourage you to come forward and make that commitment public. I'm going to be standing right here to talk with you, to pray with you. As a church, we want to help you get plugged in to what God is doing in and through His church here so that we can help you grow to know God more. So if you're ready to make that decision this morning, we want to encourage you to come. Share that with us this morning. But in, many of us have already made that commitment to follow Jesus. We've already professed, hey, I believe in Jesus. I, I, want, to, I want to follow Jesus. I've got some significant questions for us, too, this morning. The questions are these. Has the enemy lured you away from the fact that God alone is enough? Have you allowed the enemy to somehow twist God's word? Is he deceiving you, causing confusion and doubt in your life? And has he been able to get you to focus on glorifying and pleasing yourself over glorifying and pleasing God? see, we all have the tendency to, to try to find fulfillment outside of God. The question is this, are we willing to acknowledge that tendency? Stop making excuses and start taking actions to remove those tendencies so that we can follow Jesus more fully. Friday, I was um, getting ready to have my quiet time. I was sitting in my room and I was getting ready to read through my Bible reading plan that I use. And I was already thinking about this message for Sunday because I was getting ready to kind of go through it a couple of times, get familiar with it. And as I was getting their message on my mind, getting ready to have my quiet time, God began to deal with me. And He began to point out some things to me. And He said, Tracy, you need to practice what you're getting ready to preach. 
Because there's some things in your life that are a distraction that are keeping you from following me fully right now. So I went about having my quiet time that morning with the Lord, reading His Word and saying, God, help me understand all the things that are distracting me right now. He was faithful to show me things in my own life that are distracting me from following Him fully. Now, here's here's where the rubber meets the road. I saw the distractions. I knew they were there. I even acknowledged them. But I had to take a step of action to start removing those. And I'll share one of the things that's been a distraction for me has been social media. To be honest with you, specifically social media on my mobile devices because I'll sit there readily accessible and just waste all kinds of time when I could be doing it. And what pointed out, because like Thursday night I was going to go to bed and read a book that would help me in my job as a minister and I found myself wasting an hour of my time scrolling through Facebook. So God pricked me with that the next morning. So I knew that I needed to take social media off my phone and off my iPad and just get rid of those so I could more focus on Jesus. But taking that step to actually do it, (laughs) man, let me tell you, the excuses started filling my mind of why I did not need to get those things off my mobile devices. How's everybody going to know what's going on in your life? Well, my wife's on Facebook enough for both of us, so I don't have to worry about that. The point is this, excuses will come. As soon as you begin to take action to get rid of those distractions, excuses will come. What are you going to do to deal with those? Are you willing this morning to acknowledge the distractions and take actions to overcome them? I don't know how God may be dealing with you this morning. Maybe He has pointed out something specific to you this morning that you need to deal with. And if He has pointed out something specific to you this morning, then at the minimum, you need to take time as we're responding to pray and deal those things with God. Acknowledge what He has pointed out to you this morning. Ask Him to help you come up with some action steps that will help you get rid of those tendencies in your life and then fight the excuses because they will come. Let me encourage you to take it a step further. See, the Bible tells us that as Christ followers, when we confess our sins to each other and pray for each other, it's a very powerful thing. And so you may have some things in your life that you're struggling with and you're making excuses for hanging on to those things in your life and they continue to be a distraction. But you need some help. You need somebody walking beside you. You need a brother or sister in Christ who's willing to lift you up when you're feeling down. You need somebody who's willing to fight the fight alongside of you. So find a brother or sister in Christ that you can share your struggles with. Let them pray with you and hold you accountable. Accountability is not a bad word. It's a good word. We're meant to have it as brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'd encourage you this morning, if God's pointed out something specific and you need some help, find a brother or sister to help you with that. However God may be leading you to respond this morning, that's between you and God. My question for you this morning, my encouragement for you this morning, is to respond. The reality is you're going to respond one way or the other. By either walking away and acting like you didn't hear it, or starting right now to take actions to get it right choice is yours. Would you pray with me? Father God, we love you. Thank you so much for, for loving us and realizing, God, that, that, we, that we're a mess, that we're not always going to have things together, and, and that you are going to have to pursue us and continue to provide for us and even make a way for us to have a right relationship with you. God, thank you so much for loving us enough to make a way for us to have that renewed and right relationship with you. Father, I pray this morning as as we're wrestling with how to respond to the word that you've spoken this morning, I pray that you would give us the courage to take action, to do what we need to do to get it right. We 
pray these things in Jesus' most powerful and holy name. Amen.